I thought I'd start by following Paul's example of ingratiating himself to the audience. It seemed to work so well earlier. But <clears throat> and I'd, I'd just say two things. Uh, the first is that uh, as I've sat here during the previous fascinating contributions, and they have been fascinating, I've seen a number of the points that I would quite like to have made, although not as eloquently, pass by. So I try to avoid repetition, uh, but if I fail in one or two places, please uh, accept my apologies. The second point I want to make, which is a more serious point, is these are subjects about which I've thought a great deal as a result of my involvement in SOAM during the inquiry and since, but they're not subjects on which I consider myself an expert and certainly not in comparison with most of the people in this room. So I, like Sir Christopher last evening, I feel slightly daunted to be speaking to this particular audience on, on these issues. My only salvation, however, is that, as many of you will know, permanent secretaries and former, former permanent secretaries uh, have rarely been silenced by a lack of knowledge or expertise. <laughs> <laughs> so here goes. I want to I start, really, by going back to some of the basics. Um, A failure by the state to provide appropriate levels of privacy for individual citizens is, I think, a serious breach of one of the duties of care which any government owes to its citizens, as well as potentially, of course, breaking the uh, Human Rights Act uh, legislation. But equally a failure to take reasonable steps to use data, information, intelligence to protect the public, especially children and vulnerable adults, to protect them from abuse or assault, is a breach of one of the state's fundamental responsibilities to its citizens in a civilised society. And we should accept, I think, that there are always going to be tensions between privacy and protection, And those tensions, of course, will always centre, or very often centre, on how we define appropriate, as in appropriate levels of privacy, and reasonable, as in reasonable use of of data. But one sign of a mature society, without being too pretentious, lies in its capacity to find an acceptable balance by way of an informed and reasoned Debate and to acknowledge, as I said last night, that sometimes the balance will shift over time, although I absolutely accept Bella's point last evening that at the extreme some things cannot and should not change. Regressively, it, it has seemed to me sometimes that the debate around this issue has been sometimes more emotional than it has been rational and I think sometimes more general than specific. And I think we've fallen a bit into that trap over the last 24 hours. I think also, sadly, political leaders of all parties have tended to shy away from this debate, maybe for fear of being accused of seeking to limit individual privacy and therefore freedom on the one hand. This is all the more serious, I think, because... This is one of the big issues of the 21st century. The way in which we use data, information, and intelligence in government will dictate how effective governments are in the 21st century, not just around public protection, but more widely uh, than that. 
So, and the second point before I get into the more deep, the second point I wanted to make is that I think sometimes in the past the argument has been what is technology able to do for us in helping us to, to share, manage, uh, and use data. That isn't as much the, uh, the centre of the debate now. We've heard quite a lot today in particular about just how much technology can do, just how much information there is and how technology can help us to manage it. So I think, as you were saying before, I think the the emphasis has got to shift. Sometimes in the past, I think the lack of technical capacity, as to put it crudely, uh, constrained our ability to abuse the data and the information and the intelligence. But that is less and less the case. And that's why I think the debate does need to move away from the technical onto ethics, onto trust, and onto protocols. And that's what this conference in particular is about, and it's why it's so important. Of course, even now, the problems are not just about ethics and trust. As I discovered when chairing the CERN inquiry, there are serious practical problems that remain. Uh, The failure sometimes to use information and intelligence competently, that is to say to ensure that it's not lost or deleted prematurely. There's also the problems created by the growth of so many different specialist agencies. Um, When I came into local government, which I'm not going to tell you how long ago it was, but when I came into local government, I came to work for what was called an all-purpose county borough. And some days I did police prosecutions, and some days I did education attendance, and some days I did housing repossessions, and some days I did care cases. And even as a young solicitor, I was developing quite an in-depth knowledge of families, households, and people who were in that borough. Since that time, we have gradually set up more and more specialist agencies. And I think that's made it very much more difficult for people naturally to share data and information, even when it is overwhelmingly the right thing to do. I'm sure, like me, you were horrified uh, three weeks ago now by the case of the father who raped his two daughters over 35 years. One of the things that struck me about that case was not only that 100 different professional care workers were involved in the case, but the 26 different agencies have been involved with that one family. Now, all of the the tendency, the danger always is, when you set up a new agency or a new organization, they see data as one of their resources. It's their resource. It's not something which naturally uh, they're going to share any more than they tend to manage property across their bureaucratic boundaries, but that's another story. But in addition to these agencies, we've also got the professionals and the strength of professional boundaries and the cultural differences which exist also makes it very difficult uh, on many occasions to achieve really effective joint working and effective sharing of information when that's needed. And the sheer amount of information now available, even allowing for this greater capacity of technology, is also an issue, a barrier, a problem for us to face. Finally, perhaps the the fact that any kind of prediction is fraught with difficulty, so there are no guarantees that we can always predict uh, effectively or protect the vulnerable in our society is a problem we encounter on a daily basis. 
Now, in recent years, there have been genuine efforts made to ensure that information which could be used to predict, for example, violence or abuse is shared. The establishment of MAPAs, MARAX, Crime and Disorder Reduction Partnerships, Community and Safety Partnerships, I'm sure you're all going to have your own views of those, and those views will vary depending on how effective they've been in your particular area. Where they have worked effectively, I think they can play uh, an important part in reducing uh, violent crime, for example. But I, I never feel that any of us should assume that just because we set up a uh, a, a body, a committee, certainly a liaison body, that it's necessarily the answer. I think the questions for the future, though, are what information is it reasonable to use to seek to predict harm and to protect the public? And what are the lengths to which the state should be able to go to obtain that information? And I think, as I've said, that sometimes we talk about those issues too generally, and I just wanted to think about you know, a, rather, a few more specifics. Just before I do that, I just want to also say that I think we should be a bit more sensitive to the fact that different groups within our society have different views about even the big debate. I made the point last night that uh, perhaps we should sometimes think about whether victims in particular have a different view about some of these issues uh, this is not entirely because my wife runs the largest victim support organization in the country, although I do feel it's something I live with on a daily basis. But I think we do need to just remember that it is possible that victims in particular would take a different view of the balance that we've been talking about and I've been talking about and where it should, uh, where it should sit. There isn't a simple formula, but what are the questions that we should be asking ourselves uh, in making decisions about what we're doing is reasonable and whether we've got the balance right. Well, I just want to quickly, you'll be glad to know, run over ten. Um, the first is, and some of these are not rocket science, but I just feel putting them together is quite helpful. The first question is, are the methods which we're using to obtain the information, are they transparent? Have they been subject to public debate? And when necessary, where appropriate, to parliamentary debate? I think problems can arise when it seems in the short term to be convenient to take advantage of opportunities. Maybe they're advancements of technology, um, but the short-term convenience will probably be outweighed by the loss of trust uh, that, that will then exist between the state and, and the public. So the methods we're using, have they been debated? Are they transparent? Do people know about them? And even if they don't necessarily agree with them, do they accept that in a democratic society that will sometimes be the case? The second question, which of course was the basis of the Data Protection Act, is is the data being used for purposes uh, other than originally attended? And if it is, then is that within the, wall, the law? And is the potential or actual harm or risk sufficiently serious to justify the use of the information data uh, or intelligence for those reasons? In other words, is the level of surveillance, the use of the data proportionate to the harm or to the risk? Is the informational data to be used, is it reliable? Is it accurate? Is it current? And can the individual challenge or appeal against the interpretation placed upon that information 
before it causes public damage to their reputation or in some way significantly disadvantages them. I was struck during the sermon inquiry by the way in which individuals uh, who had to put themselves through the uh, CRB checks that existed at that time were having their prospective employers were seeing them being given information before they'd had a chance to challenge it um, or to prepare uh, for that uh, happening. I hope, I hope the new system uh, will stop that. But is the information reliable? And do people have the chance to challenge it or appeal against it? Fourth question is, is it possible to design credible safeguards against the misuse of particular data? And if so, are those safeguards in place? This has come up once or twice today. Um, I do think we need to distinguish between in-principle decisions and whether or not decisions are being implemented effectively. That's a point that uh, has been made once or twice. Do we have safeguards in place? Could we have safeguards in place? And I think that raises a question within the public sector of whether we've got enough people who understand how to get those safeguards in place. It just may be you know, the private sector has got uh, that better sorted than we have uh, in the public sector. There are, as we know, too many cases of data being lost or abused for the public to any longer feel entirely confident about large data warehouses run by the public sector. The fifth question I'd ask was, and this may seem a strange one, and it may be completely irrelevant, but it occurred, it's occurred to me once or twice, is the data being used to provide support to vulnerable individuals? So you may not agree with this, but you could argue placing children on, on an at-risk register is about protecting and supporting them. Or is it being used to impose sanctions? As I say, is that relevant? Or, or do the same levels of care exist you know, whatever the use. Are some actions always disproportionate and unacceptable? And the answer to that must be yes. Uh, and the obtaining of data and information by deceit uh, certainly is one of those. But are there other unacceptable practices that we should be guarding against? Has the information been obtained from an informed individual voluntarily? In which case do issues only arise if it's then used for other purposes which the individual was not aware about. I think this opens up a debate which we haven't had really at all, which is quite an interesting one, I think. Um, because there's this chasm, I think, which has now grown up between what we can do technically and what the public will allow the state to do, I wonder whether we've explored enough ways in which we could give individuals more control power over their own personal data and how that is then used. And I wonder whether if we were able to do that, they might be prepared to see some of that data used more widely uh, if they knew they were in control of it. I know it's a difficult area. We can get into the many issues of behavioral economics, for example. But I think it's a question worth asking. Are the costs of obtaining the information proportionate to the risk? Um, Someone said earlier, well, you know, <clears throat> European courts are not going to be terribly persuaded by cost. It's not just financial, though. It's also non-financial. And I think last night we were talking about the collateral damage that's sometimes involved in obtaining information, in other words, the damage to, to other people. 
What's the potential cost or damage to the individual if the prediction or the assessment is flawed? Do high levels of potential damage increase the duty of care and therefore the need to be doubly sure, for example, that the data is current, is reliable, is accurate? And finally, what are the costs of not using data to predict harm? The failure to intervene early and effectively to prevent the number of dysfunctional families imposing huge demands on the public purse before they reach crisis point. The cost of doing that is absolutely huge. There's been some research in Sheffield recently, and one of the things that they're now looking at are ways in which they could predict earlier or get signs of these families before they reach crisis point. Because the number of families in Sheffield and elsewhere that are now reached crisis point is not only putting a huge demand on the public purse, it's also making it very much more difficult to... Uh, provide a quality service to these people to provide them with real support simply because there's just so many of them. The problem has always been that if you are not careful, uh, you stigmatize people, but equally you can just abandon them to a miserable and unsupported life if you don't seek to intervene at an earlier stage. And it's, it's noticeable talking to people who've been involved in public services for many years, just how many now, and I'm sure many in this room would say this, are able to identify within their area a small number of households that are consuming a lot of public resource but also suffering disproportionately because of the dysfunctionalities you know, within that household. Is there, is there nothing better that we could do by identifying those problems earlier? So this is not an exhaustive list. It's not necessarily a list which you would in all respects regard as relevant, and you will probably want to add to it. It's not a list either, which if you ask every one of those questions and add the answers up at the end, will give you the final answer. But as I say, it does seem to me that we need to get below the generalities and start asking the really specific questions about data and information and how we use it and effectively produce a framework or a set of criteria that will inform our actions. Thanks very much. Okay.